Section 54 of Letters from Victorian Pioneers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Letters from Victorian Pioneers. Letter 54. Letter from Hugh Jameson, Esquire, to the Right Reverend the Lord Bishop of Melbourne on the Aboriginal Natives of Australia. Madura Station, River Murray, 10th October, 1853. My Lord, in compliance with your Lordship's request, I do myself the honor to furnish a few practical remarks upon the present and probable future condition of the Aboriginal natives of Australia, more particularly of the tribes inhabiting the districts of Murray and Darling. These remarks are the result of my own observations, and are expressive of opinions and convictions which have been matured by the experience of a residence in Victoria since the early days of its establishment. The almost universal opinion of the world seems to assign to the Aboriginal natives of Australia the very lowest place in the scale of civilization and of intellect. In this opinion I cannot agree. 2. The past experience, of upwards of sixty years, has abundantly shown that the Aboriginal natives of Australia are, even in the most uncultivated state of their faculties, possessed of a considerable amount of intelligence, observation, quickness of apprehension, and aptitude for instruction in both reading and writing. But, notwithstanding all these natural advantages, and which they have been found in all parts of the colony to possess, I think it indisputably proved that there is a very clearly defined limit to their civilization, amelioration of condition, and permanent improvement, either morally or physically. 3. Those who have gained experience in managing them on a proper system have found them capable of being civilized to a certain extent, and in many cases made useful in a short time without much trouble. How far they are capable of being brought to a higher and more permanent degree of civilization may very properly be considered worthy of inquiry. I fear the question may already be considered determined. 4. On this station, they have always been managed upon a uniform and rational system, they have ever been, both to my brother and myself, objects of interest. We have, for many years, endeavored to show them the advantages of permanent improvement and the general amelioration of their condition. We have exclusively employed them, and successfully, for some years in shepherding and in the usual routine of the management of sheep on a station, in sheep washing, and also in sheep shearing to a limited extent. Their services have, during the recent scarcity of labor consequent on the gold discoveries of Australia, and to us and other settlers on the Murray and Darling of great value. The proper principle of managing them is founded on consistency, kindness, firmness, and decision. Following out this plan, we continue to secure their services for shepherding and some other descriptions of work. The prospect, however, of a continuance of their services I consider doubtful. I think it probable we shall resume, in part, the employment of European shepherds as soon as the state of the supply of labor will allow. Every year's experience clearly shows that there is a certain limit to their usefulness and general improvement. I use the word limit advisedly, as I much regret to say I feel quite satisfied at the correctness of my opinion. Beyond this limit we seem to have no encouragement to look for or to expect any advance. Our object and aim here is, at all times, to prevent a retrograde movement amongst those who have reached a certain state of usefulness and improvement. Very great difficulty is experienced in keeping them up to this given point, despite of every encouragement that can be offered. It, unfortunately, appears that we cannot impart to them 
a disposition for permanently improving their condition. They have now no more wish than formerly to adopt even the first elements of civilization and abandon their unsettled and roving life. In these districts, during the summer months, nearly all, from the oldest to the youngest of the various tribes, have the greatest desire to abandon every employment and indulge in the roving life of naked savages. The tribes on the lower Murray and Darling are, generally speaking, on friendly terms. They not unfrequently, during their annual migrations, travel over 200 or 300 miles of country, increasing in numbers as they proceed, alternately hunting, fishing, and levying contributions on both sheep and cattle as they slowly and indolently saunter along the banks of the Murray and Darling. Such is the limited degree of civilization which even the best of our blacks have reached that during these migrations we always experience considerable difficulty in retaining out of the whole tribe the necessary number for shepherding alone. All the present and future advantages offered fail to compensate the savage for the disappointment of not being able to join in these wild and roving excursions of the tribes. 5. Hopes were, for many years, entertained that some of the younger blacks might be permanently reclaimed and easily civilized when separated from the older ones. I think the experiment may be looked upon as having been fairly and fully tried. The result, in nearly all cases, has been most discouraging. 6. As regards their religious opinions, they have none. They have no knowledge whatever of a supreme being, and their only idea of a future state of existence consists in some vague notion that after death they may be changed into whites. I do not at all consider this idea an original one. They have great superstitious dread of an evil spirit. All their ideas, however, are extremely vague and illusory. 7. Death is at all times by them attributed to human agency. When any black, whether old or young, dies, an enemy is supposed during the night to have made an incision in his side and removed his kidney fat. Even the most intelligent natives cannot be convinced that any death proceeds from natural causes. 8. With regard to the numbers in the tribes of the Murray and Darling, it is an extremely difficult matter to form even an approximate estimate. They are not nearly so numerous as has been generally supposed. I do not imagine that the numbers occupying the country, on both sides of the Murray from Swan Hill to the South Australian boundary, and the Darling from its junction with the Murray to Fort Bourke, 500 miles up the Darling, taken together, would amount to more than 1,500. During the past five or six years, the decrease in their numbers has been very marked, the increase extremely small, and bearing no proportion to the decrease, evidently showing that they are dying off, whilst there are few indeed to replace them. Infanticide prevails to a great extent. I can obtain no satisfactory reason why it does so. They are, in general, fond of their children, and invariably appreciate any kindness that may be shown to them. Some years ago, the offspring only of white men and aboriginal women were destroyed. Of late, infanticide has, however, become so general that even in these remote tribes the greater number of the children is destroyed immediately after their birth. The supply of food of various sorts is here by no means precarious. During many months of the year, the waters of the Murray and Darling furnish an immense supply of fish. At other seasons of the year, edible roots in great variety are plentiful, even in the interior and more northern parts of the Darling. The occupation of the country by the stock of the settlers produces no apprehensions amongst any of the tribes of a deficiency of the necessary supply of food for themselves and their children. 10. They chiefly die here, either of pulmonary and rheumatic complaints, or of a cutaneous disease of a very loathsome description. Their physical sufferings, during their many long and lingering illnesses, are very great. 
I am not aware of any having as yet died from the evil effects of intercourse with Europeans. The debasing influence of spirits has, fortunately, not as yet extended to the lower Murray, and produced the baleful effects which may be seen on the miserable remnant of the race near Melbourne. In cases of sickness, much kindness and watchful attention is shown to male relatives. I have never seen a case in which they were neglected. When seriously unwell, they frequently express a wish to be removed from one place to another. The wish is complied with at all times, and they are removed either by means of a canoe or by a rude litter made for the occasion. In the case of sickness or death of a female, the attention paid is comparably slight. When death occurs, the lamentation and wailings are kept up during the night for some time. No allusion is ever afterwards made to the deceased, and from the oldest to the youngest of the tribe, all betray a decided aversion ever to speak of the deceased, or to mention his or her name. They also have a superstitious dread of hearing the name mentioned even by a European. The matter of disposing of the dead varies throughout the colony. Here they adopt a plan of immediate interment, some few feet under the ground, wood and grass being with some care piled over the grave. 11. Of the fact that they are cannibals, we have many conclusive proofs. It is, however, only under very extraordinary circumstances that I have ever heard of any of the tribe feasting on human flesh. In general, they very carefully extract and eat only the kidney fat of their victim. On other occasions, in accordance with superstitious rite, they carry about with them the legs, arms, and pieces of the skin of their victim, not for the purpose of eating these, but with the view of distribution as charms for fishing operations. 12. Although they do not live in any regularly formed society, and there are many tribes even without a chief, still their marriages are conducted in a systematic manner. The husbands and wives are generally from different tribes. A classification of families has always been adopted and rigidly adhered to. 13. With regard to the probable future condition of the aboriginal natives of the whole or any part of Australia, I have always been impressed with the idea that, in order to succeed in ameliorating the condition of savages and bringing about anything like civilization amongst them, concentration would be found necessary. Civilization is the result of a long social process. Those submit to civilization with the greatest difficulty who habitually live by roving and hunting. Everyone who understands the matter can easily foresee that the natives of Australia are most unlikely to conform to civilization. They are as obstinately attached as ever to all the superstitious prejudices, passions, customs, and habits of their forefathers. They have always been found totally destitute of the most essential preliminary of civilization, and I fear they will never acquire it. They exhibit great dislike to the restraint even of living at a particular place for any length of time, though they are found in abundance of food and clothing. 14. In confirmation of the opinion I have expressed, with respect to the improbability of any of the Australian tribes ever being civilized, and even few of their numbers ever being advanced beyond a limited extent, I would adduce some facts from which I think conclusive opinions may very fairly be drawn. Looking back on our very earliest intercourse with the aboriginal natives of New South Wales, and to the attempts, both public and private, which were even then made to ameliorate their condition, we have the well-known case of the Sydney native Benelong, who some sixty years ago was taken to England by the first governor of New South Wales. In England, Benelong remained for some time. Very soon after his return to the colony, however, he threw off all the clothes he had brought with him from England, and returning to the bush, rejoined his tribe as a native savage. This was, perhaps, the first most discouraging proof that the aboriginal natives of Australia seemed doomed to an animal and unimproving existence. Another and a well-known case occurred lately in Victoria. 
when the native police corps was broken up, after having been formed for many years, the fact was at once self-evident that, during these years of intercourse with Europeans and in various parts of the colony, the native troopers had acquired no indispensable taste for European comforts or civilization. On the other hand, they nearly all at once discarded the idea of future improvement or other employment, and, being dismounted, traveled on foot hundreds of miles to rejoin their respective tribes and resume their former habits of savage life. Several of these native police were recruited some years ago from this part of the colony. Having deserted prior to the breaking up of the corps, they returned here, having traveled on foot a distance of 400 miles. Since their return, I regret to say, they have too clearly shown that they have not improved by their absence from savage life. 15. Assuming the impracticability of any of the Australian tribes ever being civilized by means of concentration, and that further attempt to do so would only involve a useless expenditure of a large amount of money in a hopeless cause, the only question that remains is, can useful knowledge be diffused amongst them, or can anything be done towards improving their condition without controlling their wandering habits? Some attempts upon this principle were made many years ago in Canada by the Jesuits, but without success. I fear any attempts of this nature here would be equally fruitless. The Australian Aboriginal race seems doomed by Providence, like the Mohican and many other well-known Indian tribes, to disappear from their native soil before the progress of civilization, and they will, in a few years, only have an existence in the recollection of man. The race is so rapidly disappearing here and in all other parts of the colony with which I am acquainted, that I fear no other inference than the one I adopt can be deduced either from past experience or from present prospects. I have, etc., you, Jamison, the Right Reverend, the Bishop of Melbourne, etc., etc. End of section 54. Recording by Todd.